Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast on this Easter weekend. Boy, this is uh, there's a lot to catch up on today, and we are joined by The Atlantic's David Frum. Uh, David, thanks for joining me. I appreciate it very, very much. What a pleasure to be here. Well, you know, I'm always guilty talking with you because uh, you you saw so much that was going on on the right uh, years before I did, and so I'm, I'm always a little bit chagrined, you know, wh- why uh, it took me so long to see what you saw about a decade earlier than I did. So uh, kudos to you, but a little bit of chagrin on my part. Well, you were not here in Washington, and that gave you your vantage point, which was important. Um, it's like those you know, remember when you were reading history uh, as a boy, they would always tell you the provinces flourished under the Emperor Nero. And they said, well, <laughs> they were farther away. <laughs> I, so, I am def- I'm definitely going for that. So, okay. So there's a lot of things that we need to talk about, uh, substantive things, uh, major issues that will shape the economy and society, the debate about the vaccine passports, uh, the border crisis, which is actually a crisis, the massive uh, infrastructure plan. But of course, we have to talk about Matt Gates and the unraveling of Matt Gates. This thing is escalating at incredible speed. And in part, it's because everybody knew about Matt Gates and everybody hates Matt Gates. And so it's sort of like, well, yeah, haven't you been paying attention? This guy is one of the skeeziest people in American politics. Um, what a what a shock! So your your thoughts on the meltdown of of Matt Gates and the and the drumbeat of stories that are coming out? Almost it feels like hour by hour now. Yeah, well, well I think what happened in the Trump years was a lot of skeezy people were attracted to Trump not because they necessarily cared that much about Trump, but because they recognized in him, in him someone who could protect them, someone who didn't care, um, someone who maybe um, didn't have even some of the self-protection that normal politicians would have to stay away from skeezy people. And and there, there was also a kind of moral holiday uh, in the Trump Hotel. Um, that was the place you could go. And uh, and all kinds of things would happen that that wouldn't normally that wouldn't normally happen. And Matt Gates was, was obviously part of that, that he sensed Trump would protect him. Um, and he was attracted by Trump's, who cares, attitude toward mm-hmm. basics. And, and he was quite explicit about all of this. And I was rereading the Vanity Fair profile, which also then talks about his own book, and, and where, where Gates credits Trump with making life easier in Washington for a guy like him. You know, yeah. And he described I, himself as, I arrived in D.C. as a single man after a couple of long-term relationships that didn't work out and a, a thrice married serial adulterer as the face of the Republican Party certainly provides some cover for members who might step outside the lines. This is what he said. We've got a president now who doesn't care for puritanical grandstanding or moralistic preening. He's a lot more direct, more visceral, open, blah, 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 blah. I have an active social life and it's probably easier in the era of Trump. We've had perfect family man presidents before, after all. And many of those men sold out our country, even if their wives were happy the whole time. If politicians' family lives aren't what really matters to voters, maybe that's a good thing. I'm a representative, not a monk. No kidding. <laughs> okay. I, that's news to me. That's incredible. Yeah, it um, is. Uh, kudos to the ghostwriter who got Matt Gates to sign it. I wonder if he read it before he did. I, I'm reminded of something uh, – I heard in 2016, I, I had um, somebody who'd once worked for me, a very bright young guy who'd become very caught up in the Trump movement. And he was an unlikely person to get caught up in the Trump movement. And I was talking to him, why? why? Why does this appeal to you? 
And he said, Trump is our first post-religious president. And we, we had, we've had less religious presidents before, but they usually pretended to be more religious than they were. Um, and Barack Obama pretended to be more religious than he was. Um, but Trump just said, he just made it obvious. I, I don't care about any of this. Um, and for a certain kind of person in the Republican world, that was liberating. I, I don't know if American politics goes, goes back to it. I don't know if Republican politics goes back to it. Uh, you know, again, as I mentioned before, a lot of this stuff has been known. I'm, I'm reading the ABC report this morning that about sources said that Gates was part of a group of young male lawmakers back in Florida who created a game to score their female sexual conquests, which granted points for various targets, such as intern staffers or other colleagues. And now, of course, we're finding out that, you know, he was part of this deal where they recruited women online for sex, received cash payments. Okay, so I want to put this in the context because I think you're absolutely right that if Donald Trump was the ultimate get out of, you know, get out of jail free card for a lot of these politicians to change the definition of, you know, scandal, certainly career ending scandal. Yeah. But where does this fit in in the in the culture wars? The GOP is totally invested in the culture wars and as you and I are speaking right now, it is not absolutely certain that Matt Gates will not politically survive this, that yeah. Trump world, I mean, it's certainly possible that Trump world will throw him under the bus. There's no loyalty, et cetera. But it's also certainly possible that this will be, you know, a repeat of the story we've seen before where people say, well, he's attacked by the mainstream media, the deep state, et cetera. Let's rally around him. I mean, it's possible yeah. that Matt Gates comes out of this. He's got a big contract at Newsmax is the guy that pushed back. So where does this fit in in the, in the context of the Republican Party's total investment in the culture war, if a guy like Matt Gates is one of the faces of the party, it, it means that the culture war has changed from a fight um, about sexual behavior to a fight about sexual roles, uh, and it's changed from a fight about the place of Christianity uh, to a fight about the place of of, of the white race. We, the United mm. States just generally has become a much more secular society in the 21st century. Um, you know, in back in the 1990s, what we all used to remark was that one of the things that made America exceptional was here was a highly developed country that remained, at least if you looked at the surveys, a highly religious country. Um, now, Americans didn't behave as religiously in the 1990s, as they said, they, when you actually check church attendance, they didn't go to church as much as they said they did. But if you ask them, do you believe in God? Do you believe in an afterlife? Do you believe in um, Orthodox Christian religion? You would get 80, 90% um, who said they did. Since the year 2000, we have just seen a plummet um, in both what people uh, people say about their practice. We have seen a plummet in people claim to be church members. Um, and Republicans are touched by that too. Uh, we are secularizing incredibly quickly. And in fact, since over the past 20 years, we have cut, we are, we have moved at a pace that is putting us online to catch up with to where Western, Western Europe is. And, and we will catch up to them fairly soon. Um, and so, you know, we've seen this with all your favorite Fox News personalities. Um, you know, F F uh, Roger Ailes, um, Bill O'Reilly, um, th they were not observing any of the sexual norms that they championed against Bill Clinton. I mean, to the contrary, they were sexual predators and, and lost their jobs um, because of it. Uh, and, and as you well know, there are many other people who just stepped aside in time who participated in that same culture that existed at, at Fox. Um, what they... Uh, so what we're seeing is an evolution from, from religion to race as the organizing principle of conservative American politics. 
Well, that's hard to disagree with. I guess I guess the the, the dilemma is is watching uh, the performative Christianity being ratcheted up at the same time that in fact they are, they are actually secularizing the culture and are part of that. Um, and and that's and that's the part I think that makes your head hurt. Um, I mean, there's just a certain element of pure hypocrisy here. But I think I think you're right. Is the way this has shifted. Speaking of the way the uh, culture has shifted and the Republican Party has lost its mind. I have, I of course, haven't read it yet, but uh, former Speaker John Boehner is out with a book, a uh, tell-all book that, uh, at least based on the Politico excerpt, uh, does not disappoint. And yeah. he talks about uh, the crazies and, and he talks about, you know, sitting down with Roger Ailes and his crazy conspiracy theories. And he said, I thought I could get control. I thought I could get him to control the crazies. And instead, I found myself talking to the president of the club. And then he describes yeah. how the Republican Party on the right became crazy town. And that even though yeah. he's the Speaker of the House of Representatives, he didn't hold all the power because the power had gone to the crazies and Fox News, the Hannity's, the Mark Levin's of the world, and the way in which this just changed all of the incentive structure for the Republican Party. Yeah. Well, they, they were um, – Fox News, the, the, pe- the senior people there became dealers who actually used their own product, which is never a good <laughs> idea. Um, that what you, what you, what you kind of hope and is that uh, Rupert Murdoch and Roger Ailes and maybe two you know, of the brighter stars, not Sean Hannity obviously, but um, are you – know, they're reading the financial – they may say this stuff on the air, but they're reading the financial times. They know that gravity is true. They know how many planets there are. They're not completely detached from reality. But, but the, the problem is that the kind of thing that Fox does, you can't really do it unless you participate in the belief to some degree and doing it also changes you. So, you know, my old friend, Tucker Carlson, who I I believe started as a total cynic and would have said the exact opposite uh, if told to by Lachlan Murdoch. I I think at this point he believes a lot of what he says. Um, And many of the other Fox personalities, I think do authentically believe it. And, and, and some like Hannity are too, too dim to sort out what they believe from what they don't believe. Um, But it is, uh, it is, uh, it is a d- self-destroying environment. One thing about uh, John Boehner, I, I read, read the political excerpt. I have mm-hmm. not seen the book. And in, in the world of talk radio and talk media, Boehner wrote something a little carelessly that is going to get him into trouble. But I want to defend what he meant. Mm-hmm. Um, that uh, he, he writes, Mark Levin was the first to go on the radio and spout off this crazy nonsense. And people – and the, pre- the paragraph above it where he's describing it mixes up. Uh, the accusations that um, Obama was a Muslim and Obama was a communist and Obama hates America with the birther. Stuff. Yeah. And so people are defending Mark Levin right now saying Levin was, was not a birther and he wasn't exact. He was sort of a birther, but sort of not like he didn't believe that Obama was born in Kenya, but he believed that because Obama's father was that that made Obama ineligible to be president. But Levin was absolutely first out of the gate with the Obama is a Marxist and Obama Levin was the first to say that Obama was waging war on America. And Levin actually tweeted his unhappiness that he never got credit for being the first to say that Obama was waging war on America. But because of the the, um, rather messy way uh, Boehner wrote his memoir, um, that it's 
the, the Levin and his friends are pushing back in a way that is literally true, but largely deceptive. Yeah, the, the, that that paragraph, he says, Mark Levin was the first to go on the radio and spout off this crazy nonsense. Um, and then he goes on to say, it got him ratings. So eventually he dragged Hannity and Rush to Looneyville along with him. My longtime friend Roger Ailes, the head of Fox News, was not immune to this. He got swept into the conspiracies and the paranoia and became an almost unrecognizable figure. And I think you and I remember this weird vortex watching one figure after another be sucked in and go to Looney Town or Crazy Town. But of course, uh, this had happened before 2010. This had happened before 2011. And I guess this goes back to the dilemma that we all are facing is like, okay, so how far back did this go and why didn't we 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 see it? Um, and I think that we could spend a lot of time on that. By the way, you mentioned um, Fox News. Since we're on the issue of Fox News and on the issue of Tucker Carlson and whether he believes the stuff he says, um, I, I want to play for you a short excerpt from his show last night. Your publication, The Atlantic, yeah. has a deep dive into the wrongest man on the pandemic, uh, this uh, fi- this guy, Alex Berenson, who has been wrong over and over and over again about the coronavirus. I mean, it is a record um, rather kind of breathtaking um, in its consist in its consistent um, wrongitude. And um, and yet, despite the fact that he has been you know, mendacious and inaccurate and misleading. He continues to get airtime on Fox. And despite all the documentation, he was on Fox last night and he wasn't on Hannity's show. He's on Tucker Carlson's show. And again, the reason I'm emphasizing that is because Tucker theoretically should know better. But this is what this is what Tucker Carlson had to say about Again, you know, the, the Atlantic, it's a very widely read story, a very respected publication. It's your publication, David. But this is what Tucker Carlson had to say last night. So it shouldn't surprise you that the Atlantic magazine, one of the most craven, corrupted pieces of garbage in journalism, has a new cover story out this week. In fact, I believe today attacking Alex Berenson because he read from a different script and that can't be allowed. The piece is called The Pandemic's Wrongest Man. We know Alex Berenson pretty well after a year of talking to him, so we invited him into the studio tonight. He is, of course, the author of Unreported Truths About COVID-19 and Lockdowns Part 4 Vaccines. He joins us on our set tonight to respond to this predictable, and I don't even know if it's annoying it's so dumb, but assess. Okay, so Dave, David yeah. from uh, Tucker Carlson is all in on this yeah. coronavirus conspiracy denialism now. Well, well let, let us first say... Um, the story in the Atlantic, which is written by my colleague Derek Thompson. Derek Thompson did not just opine. Derek Thompson is a business journalist. He's not an epidemiologist. What he did was he showed Alex Berenson's work to America's most distinguished scientists, and it was those distinguished scientists who said who described it as wrong or stupid. Um, and so you're not just you're not arguing with the Atlantic. One of the things that is the difference between the kind of journalism that is done at places like the Atlantic and the kind that is done at Fox is we don't let poets um, and novelists um, pronounce on epidemiology. We go to the epidemiologists and then the poets and the novelists, you know, we write down what they say and, and we, we uh, present it to you in a way that's maybe more engaging than the scientists would say it themselves. But um, when we tell you this is what the scientists think, we actually have, you know, a dozen scientists who, who say it. Um, but, what happened to the conservative world over COVID, though, is really an amazing thing. This is a true might have been. There was no necessary reason that the conservative world should have gone lock, uh, 
full in no. on COVID denial. No. Um, you'll people remember Ebola. Remember when when Obama, because Obama was in charge when Ebola broke out in West Africa, they went the other way. The conservatives <laughs> went to uh, an, an, um, extreme alarmism about ha- Ebola. Hair on um, fire. Yep. Hair on fire. Mm-hmm. Uh, so. It, uh, and had Hillary Clinton been president, I have no doubt that um, COVID would have been on Fox a giant scandal. And and by the way, from a conservative point of view, since in advance of uh, in advance of the vaccine, the most effective prophylactic against COVID is really cheap a face mask. So you can do it with you can fight COVID without a big budgetary commitment. It should have been very appealing to conservatives. So it was driven in the first place by Trump's ego needs and Trump's um, need to cover himself from his own failure um, and Trump's uh, poor understanding of how a modern economy worked that he somehow believed if he could somehow talk people into staying open, that the economy wouldn't crash in the face of the pandemic, even though um, it crashed. It, it wasn't the lockdowns that crushed the economy. It was the pandemic that drove, made people stay, everyone who had disposable income stay home. But now this has become an important part of the conservative world. And what it's done is it's opened the door to some pretty wild things, including, I mean, I think Berenson's position is just generally um, skeptical of, of vaccinations of all kinds, skeptical of medicine as it's practiced in the United States in all kinds of ways. And that that door is now open and it's become an important part of the conservative mentality. It didn't have to be. Yeah, you had, you had a really, um, I, I thought, intriguing uh, piece in in The Atlantic about the, the debate about the vaccine passports, that suddenly the Republicans have decided that they really hate the idea of passports, that it's totalitarian. And you have the governor of Florida who's saying that, that he's going to uh, issue an order or pass a law or whatever, or at least he's going to try to, to prohibit private businesses from requiring proof of vaccination, which, as you point out, is an interesting departure from what Republicans used to say about private property rights. Yeah. Now, I, in some ways, I suspect this may turn out in the end to be a pretty theoretical discussion. Like mm-hmm. tuberculosis is a highly infectious disease, but you are not asked to present proof that you've been vaccinated against, against tuberculosis when you go to a baseball game because – Everyone knows virtually everybody in American society has had the vaccinations uh, in childhood against these diseases. So, you know, the, the few people who for one reason or another missed it, they don't present a public health threat. It's not worth the trouble to check. And so that that may that may well be the fate of COVID. We may have such a high rate of take up of the vaccine. It may not be necessary to, to do anything more. Right. That's probably um, certainly for, certainly so long as you're within the borders of the United States. Um, but it may be that there's certain kinds of, um, there's certain places where, at least for a time being, like a basketball game, you're in a confined space, you're very close, there's a lot of yelling. Um, and, you know, you can see why um, the Miami Heat, for example, has said that we're going to have special sections for people who can show they've been vaccinated, uh, and we're going to, and they don't have to socially distance because we know they pres- don't present a threat to each other. That's that's an NB. That's a private person doing this. I mean, the so when people are attacking that, what they're saying is, I want to be able to come into your stadium and watch your NBA franchise and spread viruses, whether you like it or not, mm-hmm. on your property, and. And I go through a series of things with that, that the conservative demand has been, I want to do my thing, which is hazardous to others on your property. And that, that's what I, what I, uh, I, I want to spread conspiracy theories on your Twitter. Thank you, Mr. Twitter, for inventing Twitter. It's a wonderful platform. It's free. There isn't even much advertising on it, unlike Facebook. Um, uh, so now that you've built this, th- it's like an Ayn Rand story in reverse. So it is with with a lot of the gun debate, I, um, the, the, which is where this started. It started in the early 2000s with the demand um, 
that is now the law in about half the states, that people be permitted to park, stow their guns in trunks in cars parked mm-hmm. in other people's parking lots. Right. Tell, telling the, the basically saying to private businesses, you can't have these rules, imposing them. And this is, you know, you and I were, were talking briefly before we gave, began the podcast, the that uh, but the trade-offs that conservatives have made that some of these issues have been intent you know have been intention so let let, let me just talk about that a little bit um you know the 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 way in which the conservative you know the whole idea of what is a conservative well it, it it's choosing which things you value more what you prioritize and what you're willing to throw away well, I think this is look. This is just generally true about the way systems of ideas work. Um, that you, um, they're, they're assemblies, uh, and whether you consider yourself liberal or conservative, you have a series of beliefs that that go that that are linked together, and there is always potential tension between them. Now, in when the when in more normal times and more relaxed times, uh, the pressure isn't on your ideas, and so if there are tensions, they don't really flex. In the way that they do, but but what what Trump did for conservatives was he and one of the reasons you and I are here on on this mm-hmm. podcast instead of where we might have been a decade ago is we discovered oftentimes things we cared about became suddenly intention, and I mean what we, the one we were talking about before the show was um, I think you and I would have said in two thousand five we believe in free trade and low taxes right so okay what if a politician came along who said you have to choose. Uh, that he's offering low taxes, but protectionism. And, well, I have we haven't seen that since um, really the Great Depression. That choice, but my reaction is: well, if I have to choose, I would rather have free trade and higher taxes than protectionism and lower taxes. I'd rather not choose. I'd rather have both together. But if I have to choose, and and in a series of other ways that Trump forced us, um, and the Trump era has forced a series of choices. Um, you know, like. Uh, Generally, I, I'm a favor. People should make their own personal, intimate decisions on their own. Um, and and had I been asked ten years ago, what do you think about parents who, or people who refuse to be vaccinated? Your children, it's a different matter. People who refuse vaccinations, well, so long as it's marginal, so long as it's few, so long as they live in rural areas, I, I don't see that there's a lot of purpose to the state trying to apply pressure to get us from 97 percent vaccination to 100. percent Okay, now. But now it's a, like a, a culture war thing, and they insist on doing, I want to march into your Trader Joe's, unvaccinated and without a mask, and expose all of Trader Joe's customers and employees, whether Trader Joe's, Mr. Trader Joe, likes it or not. Wait a minute. Mr. Trader Joe owns that store. I, I am, you know, and I've, I, I remain committed to property rights, and I'm more committed to property rights in this crazy new vaccine culture war. Mr. Trader Joe gets to say how things are done in his store, and if he wants to protect his, and if he intelligently wants to protect his customers and employees through science, and you say no, I've got this magic amulet. I don't need science. <laughs> Sorry, go to the magic amulet store. Shop, shop for your cashews there. You know, it's, it's interesting. I was reading last night. We have a great piece up on the on the bulwark right now by Joshua Tate about uh, 
a, a pretty much forgotten chapter in American conservative history. It's called the new about the new conservatives. This was a group of people post-war who were trying to redefine conservatism um, in, a, in a very centrist sort of way. It, it, it really parallels a lot of the debates that we're having now about center left and center right and whether or not you can have a conservatism that rejects the extremes of the right. And people like Clinton Rossiter uh, were leading exponents of that completely. For, yes. And completely forgotten now on the right. I mean, really yeah. to say that that they lost and were exiled is putting it mildly. But one of the things I was reading as um, I was actually, I, I'm, I'm sorry, this sounds like a digression, but I actually found a 1956 television discussion, early public television from Syracuse University, where these guys are sitting around talking about the new, this, the, the future of conservatism in 1956. And it's fascinating. It's really, yeah. it is almost word for word, the discussions we have now. But the reason I'm bringing this up is because there was a real consensus um, among these new conservatives that 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 in fact uh, re rejecting this atomized individual notion that we have no responsibilities to one another, and that yeah. conservatism would have you know recognized patriotic obligation, your obligation, uh, your responsibility to the community and to others. So this whole you know I don't want to wear the mask, I want to do what I want to do mentality could not be more alien from what used to be the conservative sensibility. Yeah. Well, th those people in the 1950s, and as you say, Clinton Rossiter, uh, Peter Virick, and some others, they were reacting to, uh, to the horrors of World War II, mm -hmm. uh, the horrors of Nazism. And Peter Virick had an especially interesting family history. His, his, his father, father was, uh -huh. was an illegitimate child of Kaiser Wilhelm II and came immigrated to America um, and became a the leading exponent for German nationalism inside the United States at a time when mm -hmm. that you know the United States had a huge German speaking minority that was a lively concern, and uh, and the Germans had were kicked around a lot during the First World War ethnic Germans, and that led him when in the 1930s uh, to think okay history is repeating itself and once again Germans are being unfairly targeted, well this time it's a little different, <laughs> and so Peter Virick reacted to his father's role as uh, as an exponent of he got sucked into being a Nazi propagandist in the United States. I think he was arrested for it uh, during the war. And and they want to say, look, we need a politics that is uh, anti-Nazi and anti-communist uh, that uh, let, you know, gets us out of some of this crazy regulation left over from the New Deal where, you know, it's, it's illegal for a citizen to own a gold bar and where, you know, you want to ship a crate of lettuce across the country, you have to file a route map with a federal agency. <laughs> yeah. You know, uh, business people should be allowed to do business the way they, in a freer way. And, and, but we reject all these radical and extremist totalitarian ideas. And you can see where that came from. Um, and then Barry Goldwater, um, discovered the, the real power of conservatism in America in the 60s is going to be opposition to the civil rights movement. Not that Barry yeah. Goldwater was in any way personally a racist. He absolutely was the opposite and had led the desegregation of his family's uh, department stores in, in Phoenix, Arizona, and in every way had shown himself a, an open-minded man. But his ideology led him in a way that turned out to be much more politically lucrative than what um, Rossiter and Virick was talking about in the 50s.
Yeah, and that was and that was the the the, the turn. Uh, I want to talk about the border in a moment with you because you you have a very provocative take on all of this. But um, just for a moment, could we talk about what's going on in Georgia with with the voting? Because um, and and of course, this is happening all over the country. You have Republican legislators who are who have decided that. Uh, that they do not want to make it easier to vote. And you want to talk about yeah. the, the the animating issue of the Republican Party right now, the culture war. I don't know anything that seems to uh, express the id of Republicans right now more than uh, making it harder for people to vote. Now, yeah. some of the rhetoric, I think, is overheated in Georgia. And some of the things that Joe Biden has said um, are inaccurate. He's been fact-checked um, uh, by the, the Washington Post about some of the things he has said. But I have to tell you that the, the, uh, David Perdue, defeated senator, was on with um, Brett Baer on Fox News last night, and this is a, this is a little bit long, unfortunately, this this, this soundbite. But here's the guy: he's a, he's a was at one time a mainstream Republican senator, and Brett Baer asked him the direct question: Did you really lose this election? Did Donald Trump lose this? And as you listen to this, realize that that David Perdue, who's you know, that David Perdue is refusing to acknowledge that he was, in fact, legitimately defeated and refusing to acknowledge that uh, that Donald Trump lost the state of George even now. So let's play this. Brett Baer asking, uh, I think I, I think a very direct, legitimate question of former Senator uh, David Perdue. You know, obviously, the secretary of state down there did an audit of the election. Uh, election officials looked at it, did not find uh, major irregularities or fraud that would change the election. Can you say today that John Ossoff was elected, duly elected and beat you in the runoff uh, and that President Trump lost to Joe Biden? Well, but here are the facts. There are data points that are never talked about in the liberal press. And one of these is this, is that. Uh, absentee ballots, which is what Stacey Abrams has been focused on for the last three years, uh, went from 5% of the election to almost 30%. And in DeKalb County, as one example, only nine uh, uh, absentee ballots were rejected because of faulty signature out of 136,000. It was similar in nine other Democrat counties, and the probability of that happening, Brett, is one in 10,000. That's why I wanted a special session back in November. We wanted the Secretary of State to do an investigation. To my knowledge, that's never been done. The recount and all the other investigations were on other things and not on the signature veracity. So you really can't say that tonight. You know, what I can say this is this bill makes it a lot better in terms of the integrity of future people who are going to vote in the state of Georgia. That is a fact. It also gives so David Frum, um, mm -hmm. my take on that was, okay, so he draws the line from believing the big lie about the elections to this to this bill that was passed. And this to me is the sort of the original sin that this legislation in Georgia was designed to address a problem that really arose from Donald Trump's lying about the election. Yeah. yeah. I, I, let me take a, widen the aperture here a little bit, because I think one of the things that, that drives conservative politics, and especially in the past 10 years, has been a, the sense of doom. And do you remember Paul Ryan's tipping point speech um, oh, yeah. that was delivered in 2011 that, that, we, you know, we're, uh, that it, we are approaching the moment where uh, if thing, this thing happens, and in that case, it was passing Obamacare, that's it. Freedom in America, dead. It's a tipping point and you can never get it back. And that feeling you can never get it back is a pervasive feeling in the conservative world. Meanwhile, outside the United States, we see that 
The single most successful vote-winning organization in the democratic world is the Conservative Party of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. And maybe the second most successful vote-winning organization in the democratic world is the Christian Democratic Party of Germany. Um, uh, certainly the top five is the, the Liberal Party of Australia. And of course, Australia, in Australia, they, they're the right of center party. And you just go through it. And in all other democracies, um, you know, Canada, where I'm from, uh, is because of the uh, linguistic and regional problem. Federal politics are not very ideological. They're mostly about um, each region scrambling for a piece of the pie. But at the um, in in the uh, provinces where politics is more ideological, in pro- the biggest province is Ontario, Alberta, the oil province, British Columbia, conservative parties win over and over and over again. Um, it's just not true that if you you get to the tipping point and then you're over the edge and conservatives can never win. Conservatives are very competitive in systems where people vote at higher rates than in the United States. I just wish I could make American Republicans believe that about their fellow citizens. But it is true if you want to compete in that way, um, you have to you have to be a different kind of political party uh, than Republicans currently want to be. Um, but uh, if 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 Americans voted at the 70% rate that is prevalent through the rest of the democratic world, it's not true that Republicans would be finished. They just wouldn't be. And they should, and in fact, they would, they would be more competitive than ever, but they would have different kinds, uh, different kinds of voters. I mean, I remember, um, the man who's now the present premier of Alberta, a man named Jason Kenney, who was formerly in the federal conservative party and who was, who mastered their ethnic, this guy who, went and learned a lot of, you know, functional Vietnamese. He, he had this whole, he would have maps about which micro-ethnic groups uh, hmm. were more open to the conservative message. If you referred to Chinese Canadians, he'd just look at you like you were an amateur. That he said, well, wait a moment, wait a minute. You have to understand that Mandarin-speaking Chinese <laughs> vote completely differently <laughs> from Cantonese-speaking Chinese. And Fujianese, different thing again. The Cantonese are very reachable for us. The man- Mandarin speakers are rather harder. The Fujianese are somewhere in the middle. <laughs> and, wow. and Vietnamese, depending on where in Vietnam they came from. And the point was that that what what it did was really healthy was this you converted dangerous racial politics into familiar ethnic politics. That everyone everyone understands that different ethnic groups in America have historically voted in somewhat different ways, and we all get along together. And you know, big city politicians know you start the morning at a Greek at a Greek um, you know. Uh, church breakfast, and you end the, you go to an Irish funeral, and then there's a bar mitzvah, and you you do all of these things together, and they're all slightly different, but you can work with all of them. Um, and I think that's that's that could be the future of the Republican Party once you get them to say, you know what, we are getting out of the business of trying to shape the electorate. We accept the electorate. Now we're going to go win with a message that can win. Yeah, that seems to uh, to not be the approach that they're taking right now. Uh, the, the 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 degree to which they've internalized this notion that the more people vote, the worse it is. I mean, that is it seems almost universal at the moment. Uh, even even though, look, a successful political party figures out a way to have a message that uh, that it, you know that they can sell. By the way, you, you you've mentioned race a, a couple of times here, and there's something that's sort of nagging at the back of my mind. I'd like to get your take on. You know, especially with all of the, and I'm going to get to the George Floyd cases where I'm going on on all of this, listening to, um, reading a lot of the conservative media commentary on George, George Floyd is is really cringeworthy, especially when you think about that other strain in the conservative movement, which is uh, uh, about pushing back against government abuse, government power. Remember a few years ago, it was the jackbooted thugs and the black helicopters, yeah. and we need to stand. Why do we have a second amendment so that we can resist uh, an oppressive, uh, tyrannical government? 
And yet when it comes to police violence against African-Americans, it is like a completely different category. And I don't know how closely you've been following the trial. I dip in and out. I'm not I don't I'm not there for every bit of the testimony. But it seems to me to be very compelling and overwhelming that here you had a man whose life was taken by police officers abusing their power. And yet it, it is as if whether you're looking at, you know, you know, the conservative print media, conservative uh, broadcast, there's there's a complete lack of sympathy for this and a lack of concern mm-hmm. about what it represents. And so is, is this what you're talking about? When you say the culture war has shifted from from sex to race because yeah, it's, yeah. it seems like they see everything through that that particular lens. And I think the rest of the country is looking at this going, man, this is a, this is a guy, human beings, life was taken under horrible circumstance. And everybody, you know, reasonable person that was watching this or on the scene was going, what are you doing? Why is this happening? Um, this is wrong. And yet conservatives are deeply a lot of the right wing and not everybody. A lot of the right wing media is invested in find a way to rationalize it, justify it. Yeah, um, I, I I have a couple of rules for staying sane in the internet age. And one of them is I I never, I can't say I've met this rule with perfect consistency, but I really try not to react to viral video. And I try also to be very careful about reacting to trials um, on the basis of the inevitably partial information um, that we get. So I I, I don't want to take strong views on any particular case Mm -hmm. because um, the camera always lies. Uh, That, that, uh, that certain that was the story of the Nick, uh, in all kinds of ways, like the Nicholas Sandman case. So the camera lied. Oh yeah, that's uh, right. Um, and the camera always lies. By the way, dogs can't play Jenga. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. <laughs> that's a no. lie too. That took twelve hours of video to make the dog play Jenga. That's not oh. true. Um, uh, that's so dis- disappointing. I'm yeah, I know it's heartbreaking. I'm sorry. But <laughs> okay, but adorable am. Yeah. Adorable animal tricks almost always faked. I'm sorry to tell it. You're mm-hmm. the one to, to tell it to you. Um, so I, I want to be careful. But I what here's what we can say. There, there um, it really we've got 150 years of history of local police departments abusing black people, especially black men. And every black person in America feels this. And whatever the whatever exactly happened in any one particular case. That one particular case is taking is occurring against a background where people know. Okay, even if it turns out that um, George Floyd, as the right wing media are arguing, was reacting entirely to the illegal drugs that were present in his body, um, and even if the police the police officers' actions um, played only the most minimal part in the tragic eventual case, the reason that that episode ignited America is because there were thousands of other cases dating back to the earliest days of the country where local people with police power committed murder. Yeah. Um, so I don't, I can't judge what exactly happened in this case, but I know why people react the way they do. And that's something that we, you know, we need to take on board. Now, fortunately, um, police departments are becoming better and more professional. And that's also true. And that's the point the conservatives make. Um, and the, the number of fatalities is, is um, declining and is and actually is much smaller than pro- many people may imagine. Um, so, uh, so there there is there is a, a big story here. But I think what we what and this is I guess what you're right. What yeah. Civic nationhood requires of us is to enter into each other's experiences and understanding. Um, and you know when so when um, 
when you hear from people, this we find this enormously upsetting. You say, why? And even, even whatever the facts of the particular case, whatever the jury decides in this particular case, with all of the information that they are, they're allowed to see, we all need to be mindful of, of, of the larger history of America. So let's talk about the border, um, where there's clearly a serious problem. The Biden administration has been reluctant to call it a crisis. Uh, the pictures are kind of horrific. You have made the very provocative argument, though, that if liberals insist that only fascists will enforce borders, then voters will hire fascists to do the job that yeah. liberals refuse to do. Is are you concerned that that that's the scenario that's yeah. going to play out again? I, I tweeted, I think, on, on the day after Joe Biden's inauguration that um, the border was going to be the greatest threat to his first year in, in office. And so many things were going right with the vaccination program and the economic recovery. They, they, they just needed to be wary about this. And I got a lot of blowback from that, but unfortunately, that proved to be um, a sound prediction. Here's a let's step back for the larger problem. Um, so uh, the United States um, has become increasingly effective since about 2005 at policing truly illegal immigration, um, and that has to do with things like real ID. That has to do with just um, the, um, uh, the greater sophistication of computer systems. Um, that that the number of illegal immigrants probably peaked, the President of the United States peaked just before the Great Recession and, I, and still has not grown. But there's a backdoor, um, the, the people who might have tried to travel illegally in the past or the, the families of the people who did travel illegally in the past have, just have used the asylum system, which is not illegal, as basically a duplicate immigration system. Mm -hmm. uh, the United States in the um, 1950s and 60s entered into international conventions about the treatment of Asylum seekers that that are basically written with like the people fleeing with in mind the people fleeing the Hungarian Revolution, you know, finite number of people coming from a political event persecuted either for something they can't control their race their religion or for their exercise of their legal human rights for organizing a trade union or something like that. Um, then American courts went to elaborate. Well, what do these international conventions mean? And they they created ever wider concepts of what it, of of when you could seek asylum beginning in the 21st century that legal permission met the plummeting cost of international travel hmm. um, it's where you can get from the congo to the border southern border of the united states at a price that um someone with a little bit of farmland in the congo uh can afford to pay hmm. um, and uh so uh, so we've developed this giant industry, and it's become especially strong since the Great Recession that moves people from Central America, from now increasingly from West Africa, some from China. And the cost is, you know, 6000 if you come from Central America, maybe eight, uh, as much as 20000 if you come from Africa or China. Um, and there are people who will get you to the border and, and see you all the way through. And that's the world's poorest people cannot afford those prices. But people with a little bit of farmland or people with relatives in the United States who will stake them, they, they can. And, and that is bumping into an American legal system that thinks, right, the asylum seekers are going to be like the refugees from the Hungarian revolution. And, and you're getting these huge crises at the border that um, require, that baffled us in 2014 and 2016 when we had flare-ups. Then fear of Trump and then COVID deterred asylum seekers from 2018, in 2018, 2019, 2020. But now 
they're coming back and the Biden people need to find an answer to this. And the answer begins with understanding asylum, the asylum law that the United States has written for itself, which goes far beyond where international treaties are, is is inviting people to take a dangerous gamble with their $5,000, $6,000, $8,000, $20,000 in savings. Do you think that the Obama, that the Obama, that the Biden administration, though, would be willing to do that, particularly after the the Trump years? Because it seems that they are uh, invested, un- understandably, understandably, in being anti-Trump. I mean, in the right. the opposite, that they will undo everything that Trump did, and anything that sounds like a Trump policy is going to be rejected. I, I mean, understandably. So, do you think that they're going to do that, or 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 are they going to, you know, continue to sit back and? you know, experience this crisis. Uh, I imagine that in the end, they will do what the Obama people did, which is crack down. Um, Because if you don't crack down, you get an ever escalating. um, I mean, there really is no practical limit to the number of people who would like to claim asylum in the United States. And since American law now allows you to say um, poverty, domestic abuse, uh, get prevalence of gang violence, these are bases for applying for asylum. Well, that that describes a lot of the earth. There are, there are hundreds of millions right. of people uh, who can set who live in places that are poor, or where there's a lot of d- domestic violence that the police don't do anything about, or or where there's a lot of gang violence that defeats the state. I mean, maybe billions of people live under those conditions. So, um, and and the the price of making this move. I mean, yes, it's risk. It, it, it's risky. You have to have a lot of physical courage, and women are sexually abused, and and boys can be beaten. Um, but the 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 Dollar price is um, manageable by a great many people all over the world. Huh. So they are going. They are going to crack down eventually. Um, and the question is, how much political heat do they take along the way? I think it's just maybe post Trump. Maybe this is the way American politics work. As I'm going to say, this is someone who grew up in Canada. I think it's sometimes hard for Americans to take seriously the existence of the rest of the planet, and hmm. so that. Issues get seen through a very specifically American lens. The very fact that we talk about the asylum problem as the border. Well, right. There's a lot of world beyond the border. So you need to you need to think about the planet when you're thinking about asylum. But Americans see the border. What are we going to do? And then they see it very much in terms of domestic political considerations, um, domestic identities. And, and that means that they can't see – the problem that is gathering and that could and that will continue to gather unless something is done. Yeah, no, there's there's, there's no question about it that that is that is a threat. I mean, I was I was thinking about you know what this year is going to be like. I mean, obviously there's tremendous upside potential for the Biden administration in terms of the economy and getting the pandemic under order. We had a jobs report today that which was very very optimistic. So what could go wrong? Well. But the border would be number one. Um, urban unrest would be, um, you know, close n- number two if that were to, were to happen. Uh, but I, I guess it's a little bit disturbing that they have been unwilling to engage more directly with this issue, kind of hoping that they can they can distract from it. But uh, as you have pointed out, it is not going away. And we've seen over the last few years how powerful an issue that is and, 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 yeah. and how it can, and, and, and that it's a legitimate issue, but also it can be, it can be demagogue. David Frum, thank you so much for uh, the generosity, your generosity with your time today. I appreciate it very, very much. So glad to be here. Thank you. And thank you for listening to the Bulwark podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We'll be back on Monday after Easter Sunday, and we will do this all over again.